This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, June 7th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. The move toward an American-style central bank digital currency is currently slow, but it's also highly uncertain. What does the Constitution tell us about the potential plans to roll out a new currency, perhaps without any explicit congressional permission? Christina Skinner, a professor of legal studies and business ethics at the Wharton School, joined Cato's Norbert Michel to discuss the risks of a CBDC arriving without constitutional permission. Norbert, to what extent do people who are promoting or advancing this notion of central bank digital currency, CBDC, uh, to what extent are they arguing that this is a mere extension of the dollar that we have now? Well, we do hear a lot of people say that. They say things like, oh, it's just a it's just a new version of the dollar. It's just a new digital version of the dollar or an updated digital money. And 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 that's just not really true. <laughs> it's much more than that. Um it's I look at it as a change in ownership. Um, because if you talk to the if you talk to people about the technicalities, it's a little weird. Um, but it's uh, a change in ownership in the sense that it is a true, not just a technical, a true liability of the central bank. Um, in in the sense that it literally owns it. Uh, it's 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 theirs. It's theirs to do what they want with it. It's no longer something that the private sector can use as they see fit, unless they're given an explicit okay to do it. That's different from the paper money that we use right now, which is technically a liability of the Fed. But it really doesn't matter because it can be used for anything. That's right. It, it, it's it's not tethered in it's not tethered in any way to the government. That's right. Once it's out there, it's out there. You can pass it from person to person without any extra um, okay or or authorization. Christina, there are we're going to talk about the Constitution today. Uh, Congress has this authority with respect to coining money. Uh, what do we understand as a legal matter? to be the rights associated with having money or the, the, the rights that we, uh, that we have with respect to money? Right. This is a really good and interesting question. And it's a time for the public to, as you say, dig a little deeper into what the Constitution says and how it affects the way that they use money and rights associated with money. So, you know, I think it's important to understand big picture that in the United States, like in lots of capitalist economies, there are fundamentally these two kinds of money, right? There is a public form of money, and that's what we've been discussing, which is sort of the cash and currency that you can hold in your hand, right? Cash and coins. That's a that's the public form of money that ordinary households have access to today. And then there are private forms of money. And, and today that means bank-issued demand deposits, right? So everyday households use both forms of money, but for the most part, people today are more generally using demand deposits to process payments and go about their daily economic activity, right? People have cash, but they don't use it as much as they use demand deposits. And so if we take a step back, big quiz, big picture, before we even get into the constitutional ramifications, 
we have to think about how the creation of a CBDC and it being a state-issued form of money in the way that Norbert was just describing sort of shifts the balance of economic transactions from the private sector to the state, right? So that brings us to what the Constitution has to say about money, who creates it, who has the power to authorize a new kind of money like a CBDC. So you correctly point out that Congress has the exclusive authority in Article One of the Constitution to coin money. Right. So originally understood, this really meant coin money, hard currency. Right. Over time, the Supreme Court came to interpret the Constitution as allowing the federal government to create paper money as well. But the Constitution from the beginning clearly left a lot of space to the private sector to issue money, right, to create these uh, paper notes and now later as we currently have, demand deposits. So the point here is really twofold. One is that the Constitution clearly envisioned a scenario in which the private sector would act as a check on the state in issuing its own paper money, right, to make sure basically that the state didn't have a monopoly over the creation of monetary instruments. And it also envisioned that only Congress would be able to authorize the creation of a new form of money, right? So today that basically translates into the Fed needing to go to Congress to get the authorization to create this CBDC that we're talking about. So I, I want to ask ask you then, to what extent do you hear uh, the the claim that a CBDC as an American style CBDC would in fact be uh, new money? a new form of currency, or would be simply a, an extension of our current system? Right, exactly. So I think that public messaging around CBDC is just as Norbert has described. I think politicians and central bankers are explaining CBDC to the public as a, you know, a digital upgrade to money, right? Lots of things in our economy are digital. Most of the economic life that we live now in terms of payments is digital. And so ergo, the rationale goes, a CBDC is just the next step in the evolution of, of the dollar. Now, I can understand why central bankers are describing it to the public in this way, right? Because essentially, they're trying to socialize the idea of a CBDC. Perhaps they, um, you know, in, in an effort to be sort of open with the public, they're trying to describe it in a way that they think people can wrap their heads around. But as we go down the path of deciding whether we want to, you know, have our democratically rep representative institution, Congress, authorize a CBDC. It's important to peel the onion a little bit and, you know, think about the ways that CBDC is really fundamentally something different from cash in a number of ways with respect to the kind of privacy it offers. And Norbert was gesturing at this before to the kind of stability it, it offers in terms of, you know, how much it can be used as a policy instrument versus a, an inalienable property right. And again, this notion of popular monetary sovereignty that I was basically getting at before, which is, you know, which entity is it the state or the private sector that's doing most of the money creation in, in our economy? What rights that we uh, possess with respect to congressionally authorized money, the, the dollar that we have now, what what rights are at risk with the creation of an American-style CBDC? 
So I think there are a couple of things to start thinking about. I mean, it's important, I think, to emphasize at the outset that no decisions have been made about the design of a CBDC yet. So, you know, a lot of the conversation has to has to bear that in mind. Central bankers are still trying to make decisions about how it will be privacy protected and whether and to what extent it can be used as a poly policy instrument. But the things that I've pointed out in terms of, you know, possible shifts in in rights have to do, again, I'll start with the privacy piece, right? So if we're just comparing apples to apples and we're comparing state-issued public money that we have today, that's cash, with CBDC, you know, clearly there's the potential for a reduction in privacy simply because of the fact that cash has maximum privacy, right? Norbert was talking about this before. It's a bearer instrument. So, you know, you present it to pay for shampoo at CVS and there are essentially no questions asked around the cash that you present, right? So long as it's not obviously counterfeit. Um, With regard to CBDC, it's going to be very hard for central banks to offer cash-like privacy, both from a technological standpoint um, and also because we do have this apparatus under the Bank Secrecy Act under which digital money is subject to some amount of monitoring from the state to further the ends of combating illicit finance. And so just like you don't have an expectation of privacy in your bank account, it's reasonable to assume that with a CBDC, you won't have an expectation of privacy in that money either. Now, many people point out that, you know, we use our bank accounts and demand deposits all the time today. So is there really a meaningful change, right? We're already saying that we live in this world. We're pursuant to the Bank Secrecy Act. You know, if you're up to something suspicious, the government can look at your transaction data. Same thing for CBDC. But again, to the extent that cash use reduces, cash is eventually taken out of circulation, right? It's just worth pointing out that there may be less of an option for the use of a bearer type instrument. And, you know, some might reasonably think that the state would have a lower barrier to overcome in examining your transaction data than, for example, if it had to go through the private sector to gather that transaction information. So that's privacy. A second component to point out with regard to privacy is not necessarily related to this surveillance piece, but more so has to do with the notion of who is monetizing the value behind our payments transactions. So this is an important and emerging conversation in privacy economics, right? So we know that increasingly our internet traffic insofar as it's related to the things that we're buying and um, the products and services that we're looking at, right? That has value to, to advertisers especially. And right now, individuals haven't really figured out how to capture that value for themselves, even though arguably that's something over which, you know, we should be able to exercise self-ownership. And so the question is, if we're transacting more and more in a world with CBDC, is A, the state going to be able to monetize this, or are they going to be able to do a version of that where they use the information behind that transaction data to be able to better tail a policy in a way that comes to and run Congress, right? This is something that I'm constantly thinking about and we're constantly have to worry about, which is having various actors in the administrative state or the executive effectuate policy that really should be routing through Congress in the first instance. So that's the privacy piece. And then the other piece to just emphasize is that most people acknowledge that CBDC is going to disintermediate the banking sector to some extent, right? So the idea that's being put out behind CBDC is that it's going to be a safer form of money compared to demand deposits because there's going to be, you know, inherently a lower uh, 
uh, credit and market risk associated with something that is a direct liability of the central bank. So if there is a scenario in which people come to prefer CBDC, either in, you know, peacetime or in emergency time, and that sort of drains funding from the banking sector, how will that impact overall financial structure? And in turn, is that going to shift the balance of issuance rights, right? Again, this this notion of who's creating most of the money that we're using on an everyday basis, is it the state, and then we're dealing with the liability of the central bank, or is it the private sector and we're dealing with a liability of a private institution? And then, you know, lastly, I sort of touched on this already, but I talk about this in some of my in some of my research. This notion of money as a as a property, right? Um, so, you know, that it, with that notion, I'm basically getting at the fact that the way that we understand the value behind the cash and currency we use today is very similar to the way that we understand other kinds of tangible or intangible property rights, which is to say. It's inalienable, right? So we don't assume that the state can sort of arbitrarily, that is without widespread democratic assent, you know, alter the the value of the dollar, right? In the way that, you know, during emergency times, past presidents were given congressional authority to alter the gold content of the dollar or something. We assume that that can't just, you know, randomly happen. But with a CBDC, you know, I'm not saying this is definite, but inherently by by given the fact that CBDC is a programmable instrument, there is the possibility that it will fluctuate more in terms of, you know, the interest that it pays, which groups it's available to, what you can use it to buy things for. So again, I sort of liken CBDC more to a, a policy tool that can make the administration of government better. But that's something very different from the kind of cash and coin we have today, which is much more like a very secure kind of property right. Norbert, there are executive agencies with regulatory power that regularly attempt to do things that Congress has told them they can't do. Oh, yeah, no, that, that happens once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> once in a while. You're being very generous. I appreciate that. But, you know, what is, what is the likelihood that we're going to see something like that with a CBDC? You know, if, if, if the public is inured to this idea that, oh, it's just, it's just a digital dollar, what is then the likelihood that an executive agency might say, well, we're just going to roll on ahead and we uh, challenge Congress to tell us no? Yeah, I, I, I am uh, a little bit less in, in this, in the camp that Christine is in on this one. Um, I'm not, I'm not so sure there's not enough gray area in the legal authority, especially to do what would be called an intermediated CBDC. And in, in that scenario, something is set up where the Fed is dealing directly with the banks and the banks are dealing as sort of uh, brokers. And in that scenario, I think that if you had an aggressive Fed chair who really wanted to implement a CBDC, somebody like a Lyle Brainerd, um, I think they would do it. And I mean, I think there would, there would, there would be fights and lawsuits and everything, but by the time all that clears, God knows how long that'll be, uh, you've got one. And in the meantime, you know, what's going on right now is they're setting up a pilot program. They're saying they're doing research, they're researching the CBDC at the Fed, but they're setting up a pilot program. So I think that, you know, if you look five years down the road, something happens and somebody who's not Jay Powell is in charge of the Fed, um, somebody more like a Brainerd or a Yellen who is on record as saying, you know, that they uh, all the, they're talking about all the advantages of these things as a policy tool. I think you're going to get one, and I think it'll be intermediated. 
And it might even come with a congressional appropriation, depending on exactly, you know, what's going on. And then you've got one. And then good luck getting rid of it. But I don't think you need the congressional appropriation. I think you could still do it. So, yeah, I, I, it would be pushing the envelope. But, you know, so was, so is the way the Fed set the interest rate on reserves. That's also pushing the envelope. The plain reading of the statute is completely uh, clear. And yet they found a way to pay an above market interest rate, which they're not supposed to do. And they're still doing it and nobody's stopping them. So, yeah, I mean, I know the CBDC is obviously bigger than that. But I mean, that's just one recent example of them doing something that's questionable given the statutory authority that they have. Go look up the, the definition of a Federal Reserve note and then let's come back and have this this conversation again. I mean, I, you know, you, you could, you could make a case and I don't think it's a great case, but you can make a case that a CBDC, especially an intermediated one is a new digital version, uh, of the dollar. And they're just doing what they're supposed to be doing, what they're always been doing for the last hundred years. So to both of you then, uh, who in Congress is speaking up for their own authority here? Uh, Emmer. Uh, uh, Majority Whip Emmer is one person. Senator Mike Lee is another person. Uh, Cruz, Senator Cruz is another person. That's off the top of my head. I will, I will, uh, you know, take the other side of this one a little bit here, as Norbert was saying, just to give your listeners a lot to noodle on. There is gray in certain areas around CBD, especially when you start talking about wholesale CBDC. But I really have observed the Fed over the course of its history being a politically astute and savvy institution and, you know, pretty small C conservative when it comes to really significant shifts in its authority. So at least from what I've seen, I would be quite surprised if the Fed tried to create a retail CBDC without congressional authority. But I nevertheless agree that it is also true, as Norbert pointed out, that the personalities and power really matter. So oftentimes, because laws around, you know, constraints and Fed independence are more norms than, you know, carefully written laws, the extent to which the Fed is willing to push the envelope or defer to Congress and so on and so forth depends on depends on the Fed chair, depends on the Treasury secretary, depends on the president. Wow. Norms over carefully written statutes seems a, a little alarming to me, Norbert. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think I, I don't disagree with what Christina is saying. I mean, I think it's a slightly different, you know, take. Um, and I, I, I don't want to handicap anything. I don't want to put, you know, odds. I just think that if they're in the breach, they're going to do something. Um, you know, like if, if they feel like they have to do something, they'll do it. And it definitely matters who is running the show. Um, a lot of the stuff is at the discretion of the board and or the chair. And that's going to have a lot to do with whether they, whether they go ahead and issue something. One thing I would add here is that I think it is also important to keep conversations about new monetary instruments separate from conversations about upgrades to 
payment systems. And I think sometimes in these conversations around CBDC, the two things can be quite conflated, right? So sometimes CBDC is used as a rationale for, you know, for example, improving the efficiency of the cross-border payment system or even the domestic payment system and vice versa. Sometimes, you know, people will look at, you know, efforts to upgrade the payment system and say, you know, this is going to take us down to the path to the CBDC. I think a productive conversation separates the two, right? Because we can move forward with updates to our payments rails, right? And potentially even think about the way interbank transfers and payments are made on a blockchain technology in the future without necessarily needing to say, you know, this implies that we're going to have a retail CBDC. And I think, you know, again, as I was saying at the outset, as the public conversation around this becomes more developed, I think there you will see more differentiation around the notion of, payments infrastructure and the need for a new kind of monetary instrument. Because at the end of the day, you know, I think I certainly wouldn't be the first person to point out that one of the biggest political and practical challenges to a CBDC right now, I think is not even sort of legal barriers that I was talking about. It's just that I think we've yet to convince people that there's a real use case for CBDC, right? And this is precisely because, you know, as we've been talking about the payments that people make today are electronic when you're using demand deposits. Obviously, that's all electronic. You can't hold a demand deposit in your hand. The way that we make cross-border payments is electronic. And the way that banks converse with each other is with electronic central bank reserves. And a lot of the rationales that have been offered for CBDC, again, when you when you press on them, they don't really hold water. So again, I think the first step, you know, in actually persuading anyone that a CBDC would be necessary is to really really uh, illustrate what exactly the use case is. Christina Skinner is a professor of legal studies and business ethics at the Wharton School. Norbert Michelle directs the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 